With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This is a podcast I did for Wired.com about a lot of interesting topics, but the first topic was how my favorite science fiction movies have changed my life. I don't know. It was a unique interview. It wasn't what I normally talk about. And I asked them if I could put it on the James Altucher show. I just did this a few days ago, this podcast for Wired. And enjoy. Let me know if you like this. Um, it'd be really helpful for me if you write a review or even just tweet at me. And let me know, actually. I used to do these Twitter Q&As, and I really enjoyed them. I did them for six straight years every Thursday. Uh, let me know if you'd like me to do something like that again. In any case my favorite science fiction movies and how they changed my life and a bunch of other interesting topics. The podcast that I originally appeared on was The Geese Guide to the Galaxy. I highly recommend that podcast. Here's the episode on my podcast. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 461 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is entrepreneur James Altucher, host of the popular podcast, The James Altucher Show. And we'll be speaking with him today about his article, 11 Sci-Fi Movies That Changed My Life, and about his new book, Skip the Line in which he shares lessons about life and business that he's learned from making millions, losing it all, making millions again, losing it all again, and then making millions a third time. And now here's our interview with James Altucher. All right, so we're here with James Altucher. Welcome to the show. David, thanks so much for having me on this show, Geese Guide to the Galaxy. I'm looking forward to this. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, get right into it. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is that you wrote an article called 11 Sci-Fi Movies That Changed My Life. So do you remember yes. how you came up with the idea for that article? Well, I, I mean, since I was a kid, I've been a sci-fi fan. I don't know how I would describe myself. I wasn't like the average kid. And I just loved, I, re I read every science fiction book I could find. I watched every science fiction movie. And probably there were several, I mean, certainly Star Wars is a classic. I was, I was nine years old when that came out. It was so influential to me. It changed my life like it did for many other kids. But you know, that's obviously influential, but there's a million science fiction movies that have been, you know, a, a big influence on me. So if you were, would other kids know like, oh, James, he's the sci-fi geek, or was it something you kind of kept to yourself? I mean, look at me. If anyone sees a picture <laughs> of me, I look like, uh, if you didn't 
if you didn't think I was a sci-fi geek, there's probably something wrong with you. <laughs> um, well, let me list, uh, I sort of broke your, uh, so you had 11 movies on this list. And so pre-2000, you've got Planet of the Apes, the, the original with Charlton Heston, the original Star Wars, Blade Runner, The Road Warrior, and The Matrix. Could you talk a little bit about how that group of movies changed your life? Yeah, I think, you know, and and I don't even know if I would classify some of them as like pure science fiction. Like Star Wars, even George Lucas tried to make like, he, he even called it like a sci-fi, sci-fi meets Western. But there's also this kind of almost spiritual aspect to it with the force. And I just, as a kid that had such influence on me, like, and, and, and still does, like, even as an adult, I remember one time I was uh, going out of business with one of my businesses. Things were going bad. Investors were pulling out of the business. And I would buy these weird self-published books like, you know, how to use the force and stuff like that. Like this, I was like an adult in my 30s. And I literally would like say, okay, I am going to trust in the force that this business is going to be saved. It was saved, probably not because of the force. But that's how much that movie and it's, you know, kind of the movies that came after it in the Star Wars family had an effect on me. Like I would study them to learn about the force and just the idea that I, I don't know that there was this empire and so many, you know, I love movies where it's not just framing the story that they, you could tell that there were other stories before and afterwards in this universe, the universe, the universe is like a repository for, for billions of stories. And the one we see in star Wars is just a, a small piece of it. Uh, it's sort of like, like the Mona Lisa, for instance, the painting, the frame encapsulates the entire picture She That's the pictures, the, the Mona Lisa, but there's other paintings where you could tell there's things happening outside the frame, you know, Sunday in the park with George, there are things happening outside just the people we see in the picture. And that's what star Wars is like to me. Like there's, there's many, many, um, stories to be told there. And we're only going to see a small piece of them and just the way it's set up. Like it was in a galaxy a long time ago, far, far away. You could tell it's like, it's a whole universe there to be, to be explored. And in my mind, I would explore it. You know, I would almost, it's almost like what's called fan fiction now. Like imagine like all these other stories that were happening in that universe. And, and by the way, everybody, you know, depending on what generation you you were born into. Some people like the prequels. Some people like the sequels. Some people hate those. I like all of them. I think, except for maybe the very last one. The very last one I thought was horrible because I just, I felt it was like, it was done in this modern style where you could tell they made the movie and then they focus grouped it. And, and, and then every single piece uh, during the focus group watch that, that didn't seem to resonate with the focus group. They just simply cut out. So the movie like moves like too fast and it's hard to understand what's happening. It's just, it, it was just like a big mess just to kind of yeah. tie everything up. We should maybe say that with the last one is the rise of Skywalker because they're putting out so many that people listening to this in the future might need a little uh, <laughs> clarification there. Good point. The one, the one where the emperor is like this weird, he took over this planet somehow after dying in Empire Strikes Back and or in Return of the Jedi. And Ray is somehow his grandchild. We never hear any more about his son who seems to like have disappeared from the plot. And <laughs> on and on. There's like so many problems with it. Just, you know, I'm a writer. And just from the point of view of like a writer, it was like a horrible movie. But then 
the way they edited it was just a shame. Yeah, uh, no, I completely agree with that. But, you know, one of the things I talk about on the show a lot is that I was raised, you know, both my parents are not religious, so I didn't really have any religious upbringing. And so I really feel like science fiction was kind of my, you know, it played the same role in my life that religion plays in the, in the yeah. life of a religious person. I, I agree. Like, same, same for me. Like, and that's why, I st that's why most of the movies on my list have kind of a semi-religious component. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, let me list the other, the post 2000 movies on your list are district nine minority report edge of tomorrow, her Looper, and arrival. So, um, what do you think about how did those do you, anything jump to mind about how those changed your life? Yeah. And you know, I want to say like science fiction sort of, well, Ar Arthur C. Clarke makes the famous quote, which I'll probably paraphrase like anything that seems like magic now will be science later. I forget the exact quote. Yeah, well, it's, it's any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. And a lot of the, these post, um, these post 2000 movies, and I'm sure it's true for prior ones, but now they're probably science as opposed to magic. But, uh, like you think about something like, um, uh, uh, her, this is, this is like, we're on the verge of this technology already that, you know, AI, and meets robotics meets you know who knows whatever is the next stage of computing quantum computing things like thing, things like her will be possible where you have artificially intelligent beings that may or may not be conscious but we won't be able to tell and will play some sort of role in our lives like we'll be part of our lives even like maybe at first the way a dog is like a dog is not somebody we really have a, an intelligent conversation with but a dog is man's best friend and you know, it plays a role in our, in our lives, the, the role of pets. But, but I think AI will, will start that way and then move beyond it. I mean, AI already is kind of that way, but it will move, will move beyond it and really become, play the role of a companion or at least a helper or assistant in some way. And so her seems to me we're on the, on the verge of that. And it kind of, you know, a lot of these post 2000 movies are sort of guides to how the year 2050 might look like, uh, you know, what was one other one of the, Oh, edge of tomorrow. I love just any kind of time travel movie because, and there's, there's so many great time travel books. Like I'm just, I, that's an, an entire genre into itself, but just, you know, there's this kind of this aspirational aspect. What if I was the only one who could move in and out of time? What would it mean to me? What would I do? How would my life be better or would be worse? Like groundhog day, uh, is an amazing movie because he uses that same day. And I, I think they theorize that he, he's in the groundhog day, like 19,000 days in a row, give or take. And, you know, he learns to play the piano, like a master. He, he learns so many skills and he becomes a better person as a result. And, and through these science fiction movies, we're allowed to speculate. What if this were to happen to me? Because in all these science fiction movies, part of the point is, is that it doesn't happen to someone special. It happens to someone mediocre or even below mediocre, like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. We can relate to that person who's, who's mediocre, who's an everyday person, and we can speculate what would it mean for me. It's almost like watching Groundhog Day is almost like a safe way to experience those 19,000 days and understand how I would grow and how I would learn. And maybe I can learn those things now without spending those 19,000 days. Similar with Tom Cruise, he kind of figures out how to make his, you know, create a world in the direction of what he thinks 
is the better world and and along the way falls in love and and has to figure that all out about himself about the world around him so i don't know it's very exciting to me these these movies yeah and you can see that with your podcast for sure because you do talk about science fiction sometimes so like some of the guests have been um chuck wendig hugh howie andy weir james lucino yeah could you just say why you wanted to talk to them in particular yeah, just understanding, you know, like take someone like Andy Weir, the Martian. There's there's not really many characters in that. There's just the main guy who's stuck on Mars and a little bit the guys on, on Earth. So so plotting is a little different in some of these science fiction movies and, and of course in science in science fiction books, I mean. And of course science fiction has something that most fiction all almost all other kinds of fiction do not have, which is world building. Like James Lucino has to create the world of which Darth Plagueis and these other Star Wars characters exist. He has to, and he has to work off of the world of Star Wars, but then create his own worlds. Just like J.R.R. Tolkien had to build the world of, of Lord of the Rings. And Hugh Howie had to build this whole future about that, that leads to the world around wool. So, and then how do you create characters in a completely new world are the emotions the same and how do you do plots so that people don't get lost in the details of the world like science fiction is very hard to write i would i would think so you don't you don't want to get too obsessed with the world and you, and you don't want to forget that you're creating a world so you have to deal with that but you but you also have to deal with the, a normal plot yeah i mean one thing it was interesting to me listening to you interview different people like i think it was in the chuck wentig interview as you mentioned reading you know roger zelazny and poppy z bright and authors like that and a lot of people i would talk to who are who are science fiction fans but um you know not in the field professionally they would know kind of the same eight authors you know like asimov heinlein clark william gibson neil stevenson etc and i thought it was interesting like you're obviously you read a lot of science fiction that you would you would be pulling out, you know, like Rogers Lasney, Poppy Z. Bright, and authors like that. Yeah, I, I mean, as a kid, so I grew up in the '70s and the '80s, and there weren't really a lot of science fiction movies. Like, I can't name more than a handful. And but there were a lot of science fiction books. And yes, the guys you mentioned, like Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, th these were like the classics from the '50s, '60s, '70s, '80s, who won all the Hugo Awards and so on. But there was a lot of good, innovative writing among, you know, the the a younger generation of writers that was happening in the, particularly in the '80s, and I really, I really enjoyed. I probably enjoyed fantasy a little bit more than science fiction. Like Roger Zelazny, I would consider more a fantasy writer. But uh, just again, the the it, it, it takes extra imagination because not only do you have to plot and build really strong characters, which not a lot of these writers did, by the way. A lot of the writer, science fiction writers focus too much on the science. But if you could create a good plot, good characters, like with depth, and and successfully world build, it's it's a, really a, a hard task and amazing thing to read. Yeah, I mean, Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber is my all-time favorite series. Like, I've read some of those books 40 or 50 times. Yeah, um, me too. I, I just, I, it's so funny, I just bought it. Like, I, I hadn't read it in maybe... I would say 20 years. I read it 20 years ago and uh, was the last time I read it. I, I read it a million times as a kid, uh, but I just rebought it, the, the, the whole series. Yeah, The Great Book of Amber. Yeah. So what was it like reading it 20 years later? 
Was it the same as you remember it or different? It was a little different. I would say the writing wasn't as good as I remembered it 20 years earlier, but still the, the, the tropes he uses and the, the plotting and the idea of this family that can like go, go through all these worlds and this spectrum of worlds between chaos and order and the original, the initial trope of a, a man waking up with amnesia um, that has to figure, and, and he's got some, something special about him, but he doesn't know what, and he has amnesia. Voila, we have the born identity takes the exact trope, you know, decades later by Robert Ludlum. So Rogers Lasney, I think was the first to really take a lot of these, these ideas and themes and make them into a great book. I remember one time I submitted a science fiction story to high times magazine, which is a, you know, you, you know, the magazine the and, uh, yeah. um, Lou Stath, this was the editor. This was like in the, uh, this was like in 1991 and they rejected it, but I talked to Lou and he said, you know, he, he kind of broke down Rogers Lasney's, all of his books and, uh, he said I should reread those to, uh, you know, keep, keep studying the form, how Rogers Lasney brings you right into the story and, and immerses you in it. I also love, you know what I love? I love Road Marks by Rogers Lasney. You know that book? Yeah, actually, I just saw that George R. R. Martin is turning that into a TV show. Oh, you're kidding. That is the ideal sh uh, book for a TV show because you could keep on generating stories forever as you, you know, basically this guy's driving on a highway in and out of time. Every exit's like a different world or time period. And I, th I thought it was beautiful. And then I like his um, Lord of Light uh it's really, really great. Such a great imagination. You really see imagination in the science fiction writers. Yeah. I mean, one th the thing that's distinctive about, or one thing that's distinctive about Zelazny to me is that he's cool. You know, like his characters are, have witty dialogue and humor yeah. and just attitude. And a lot of other science fiction writers have many strengths in terms of imagination and, and everything. But, but that quality of just being cool is, is something that is sort of, you know. That, that's a really good point. I, I never really thought of that before, but like, yeah, there's a certain authenticity to his main characters. Like they, they, they're, they're usually kind of stronger than the average person. They're usually, like you say, they're usually cool in the sense of what cool means, but they're authentic to themselves. They won't do something that's inauthentic really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought there were some interesting things in terms of how these um, science fiction authors had influenced you. So, so you say that, the Foundation series was the basis for your first hedge fund, and that Minority Report uh, has uh, sort of affected your entire investment strategy. Could you talk yeah. about those? Yeah, sure. Well, think about um, the Foundation series. So essentially, you know, the the main Foundation, whatever planet, they they use statistics. They use advanced knowledge of statistics to predict the future. Right. And, uh, this is a lot of what they wrote in the foundation series. What Asimov wrote in the foundation series is really what we call artificial intelligence today. So a lot of people don't really understand AI. They think AI is somehow modeling the brain. And as the computers get faster, eventually they will perfectly model the brain. But really what AI is in, I'm, I'm making a broad generalization. So AI specialists, forgive me, I happen to be an AI specialist myself, but really what AI is, is you take a lot of examples of something and you figure out what the important features are in what you're trying to categorize and you use statistics to then categorize new, um, 
new instances of what you're looking at. So in a game of chess, uh, Alpha Zero, the, the AI, the best chess computer in the world, uh, looks at trillions of chess positions, knows which ones are winning and which ones are lost. And then when it sees a new chess position, it uses statistics to compare it to all the trillions of positions it's seen. And it says to itself, what, is this position most like a winning position or most like a losing position? And it uses statistics to do that. Now it uses a very advanced form of statistics, um, but it's statistics nonetheless, and that's AI. And so, uh, you know, when I started a hedge fund, I wrote software that would statistically look at, you know, 70 years of history of the stock market and categorize each day as either a, a winning day for the market or a losing day for the market. And it would figure, it would statistically figure out, well, what was most common on the big winning days and what was most common on the big losing days. Now, tomorrow is a new instance of a day in the market. And I would then use all the prior history and the statistics about that to predict what would happen the next day in the market or what would happen the next day with certain stocks. And it worked. It was a very successful strategy. And I was doing this like in 2000, 2001, 2002. A lot of people now are doing it. And so I don't know, you'd have to be, I don't know what the state of the art is. I'm, but, I'm certain it's But you it's got advanced. the idea from reading Asimov's Foundation. You, did you, you read hundred percent? Yeah, 100% from reading Foundation. In fact, when I would pitch my strategy, because you know, a big part of running a hedge fund is raising money and you have to be, you have to pitch your strategy. I would always ask people if they read Foundation, the, the Foundation series, because I would use that to explain my strategy. And, uh, you know, what, what was the other one you mentioned? Um, oh, Minority, Minority Report. Report. It's the same thing. Minority Report's the exact same thing as Foundation. Is that they, and by the way, the company Palantir is the exact same thing as Minority Report. Palantir, when your bank calls you and says, oh, you've made a transaction that we think might be fraud. That's because they have lots of statistics about you and about people who are like you and about people who are like you who then commit fraud. And so everything you do is analyzed statistically. Is this more like, you know, the David we know, or is this more like uh, the David we know that maybe uh, matches our profile of how David would commit fraud? <laughs> and if, it, if it's the latter, they close your account for a few minutes and call you and say, we suspect fraud. So that's working like how minor, exactly how Minority Report works and how Foundation works and so on. I heard you saying uh, in one of your podcasts that I listened to that you're not concerned about AIs waking up or like taking over or running amok or anything like that. No, that's that. in, that's insane. Like, like, oh, is a dog ever going to think like a human? No. AI is a different beast. Computers are not humans. And they, the computer chip processor does not act in any way like a brain. There's nothing about computers that would make me think suddenly one's going to become conscious that maybe if there, if that's true, it's at least a thousand years away, but, and think about it, AI right now, if you really want to stack it up against humans, AI is good at very specific tasks. So I can write an AI program to predict your next bank transaction. I can write an AI program to predict where's James, what kind of car is James going to buy next year? I could write AI to, um, you know, predict the stock market to some extent, you know, when you're using statistics, there's probabilities involved. So we're only dealing with probabilities here, but, uh, I can't make an AI that's good at everything. 
all those things I mentioned, they're very good at one thing. I, Alpha Zero can play chess perfectly, but it can't taste an apple and tell me if it tastes good. So humans can do billions of things using the same processing power in their brain. And it, there's no AI that is even remotely like that. It is, we're a billion degrees apart. Like it's not even in the same conversation. The only reason people uh, say, oh, AI will one day wake up is because it was a branding thing in the 80s. The Department of Defense was throwing money at any academic computer project that was working on artificial intelligence because they thought this was about like, oh, okay, we're going to have robots as as soldiers and the, the Terminator is going to be a soldier. But that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I had kind of this interesting experience where, you know, I interviewed Steven Pinker and he was saying, he sort of said in passing that he's not concerned about AI, sort of what, like you're saying, he said, you know, if Elon Musk was that concerned about AI, he should stop making the self-driving cars because that would be the thing that would lead to it. But I'm not concerned about it. Well, Steve, Elon, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Let me just finish. And, and yeah. Elon Musk actually saw that and like tweeted about it saying like Steven Pinker doesn't know what he's talking about. He There's a complete difference between the kind of AI that would drive your car and general AI. And there are good reasons to be really worried about that. And I feel like he seems like someone who, like if it's as clear cut as you're saying, it's, you know, a thousand years away, a million miles away. Like, how do you think that people like Elon Musk are, are sort of, are, are so concerned about this? Okay, so first off, Steven Pinker, he's a genius and I love his writing, but he's not a, he's not a computer scientist. He doesn't really know what AI is, but he is an optimist. So he, he, he will look at any technology and say, okay, this is probably going to be better and better and better for society. What Elon Musk is doing, Elon Musk does understand what AI is and he has a computer science background. What Elon Musk is saying is that if you program AI to do the wrong things, like for instance, let's take contact tracing as an example. If, if I program my AI to um, find everybody who might uh, have a, um, might have COVID and I wanna make sure they quarantine, I'm gonna shut down their bank accounts. Using AI, I'm gonna just shut down their bank accounts and except unless they're only buying something for, to meet household needs from Amazon and shut it down for everything else, like any st shopping at a local store or whatever. And that's where I would worry about where AI is now and how it could be dangerous to society because the technology is there. I can predict someone, something, somebody should be doing something else other than what the government thinks they're doing and I'm going to prevent them from doing anything else using AI. That's possible right now. So that's what Elon Musk is worried about. Whether he's worried about a, a computer waking up, there's there's no way that someone who understands AI would be worried about that. So he, my guess is he, Elon Musk is more worried about these specific tasks that I've described AI is good at, but somebody programming a computer to do a specific task that is against uh, the the freedoms of of people. So in your book, uh, skip the line, which I do want to talk about. One of the things you say is that I mean you talk you talk about a lot of a lot of different things in the book. But um, you talk about your podcast, which I'm particularly interested in, obviously. And um, one of the lines that jumped out at me is you say, uh, I interviewed thousands of people at three in the morning in New York City. I interviewed prostitutes, pimps, drug dealers, and homeless people. I learned how to interview during this period. And just as an interviewer myself, I was just curious, what did you learn about interviewing from that from that whole experience? Yeah, so, so back in 1996 through 98 or so, uh, I was doing a project for HBO called 3 a.m., where I would interview people at 3 a.m. on like a Tuesday night. 
why a Tuesday night is because if you're out, if you, David, were out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night in New York City, you're probably not up to anything good. Like Saturday night, okay, people go to bars, people go to parties where they're hanging out with friends. Saturday night's like any other, like normal, normal behavior. But Tuesday night, having done this for three years, uh, uh, and, and like I said, interviewed thousands of people, you're not up to anything good if you're out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night because you got work the next day or you're a student the next day or whatever. You have your life to live. So I started doing this and I was really scared because it's hard to just walk up to people at three in the morning and say, hey, can I talk to you? And uh, I, I, the first thing I learned was A, to overcome my fears and, and shyness. Like you just have to go up to people and everybody, everybody has a story. And you just have to respect that story. And, and you also have to make sure right away that you're likable, that they don't, that you're not, I mean, you're walking up to someone at three in the morning. So you have to make sure they're not threatened at all. And so you have to be, you have to be likable and you have to learn that's now I say likable. It's not like I was unlikable, but, but likable in this context is a skill. Like you have to basically say things and do things to appear non-threatening and to get them to open up to you very quickly. You have like maybe two or three seconds to con- to make this person think, okay, I'm willing to tell this person deep secrets in my life. Because that's it's only interesting when you find out why they're out at three in the morning and most of them are up to something not so good. So you gotta, they've gotta acknowledge that they're gonna tell you things that they in normal circumstances, they wouldn't want the whole world to know. And so I really learned a lot about that. And I, I really did. And then I also learned Everybody's got a story, but then everyone's got a deeper story. So a transvestite prostitute uh, on the street in the meatpacking district in, in Manhattan, which used to be a very tough area. Now it's like a glamorous area. But a, a, a transvestite prostitute, this person first has the story of what's going on tonight. You know, what's the life of a transvestite prostitute like? Why aren't they, you know... Why don't they have another kind of job? And and you learn a lot. But then the deeper story is what happened to them as a child where now this is their life and what are they going to do when they're older? And, you know, what do they cry about when they get home? Everyone's got a, everyone's got a story, but then everyone's got a deeper story. So it's pretty, is it pretty similar interviewing people for your podcast who are like, you know, entrepreneurs and celebrities and podcasters and writers and things than is it is that pretty similar to interviewing the prostitutes and Abs- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, and sometimes people you can't you can't do it. Like sometimes their shell is too hard, or it's not enough time, or they weren't really willing. They were on the defensive. They weren't really willing. So that again, the likability thing is is just as important. Um, you know, becoming friends with them in a very short period of time, and also you have to just very you have to listen very closely. Like I was talking to Coolio once, the the rapper, and you know, we were talking about his rap career and and that was fascinating. That's the story. And then he was like, and then I took a few years off. You know, I had some Coke addiction problems, but I solved that. And then I got into cooking and I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, how do you just solve your Coke addiction? And how did you get into that? And so that's for him, the deeper story. Like here's this kid who grew up in Compton and for 17 years, he would write lyrics every day. He was never really in a gang or anything. He would just sit at home and write lyrics. He was kind of the geeky guy. And then suddenly he has the number one hit in the world. So he didn't really grow up in an addictive with an addictive personality or anything, except he was obsessed with, with rap and he really understood rap and hip hop and he broke it down. But then there was this deeper story that he had, he had some problems after that. And why would someone so successful have these problems and how did he solve them? 
Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee. And I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything 
than go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. It's funny when you when you say the thing about Coolio saying, you know, he had addiction and you're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, slow, slow down. I kind of had the same experience reading your book because there would just be these like random lines where it would be like, um, you know, I the last time I cooked, which it sounds like was a long time ago. I haven't been to the doctor since I was a teenager. Uh, I'm not allowed to drive. They're just like these like, you know, my mom says I was creep. Even my mom says I'm creepy. Like there would just be these things where I was like, wait, 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 I want. I want some more elaboration on some 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 things because you know, right. it sounds and, like there's a big story behind some of these. And so it's hard to judge one's own writing. Like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But like it's like what I said earlier about paintings. Some paintings are completely within the frame. And some paintings, you know that part of the story is happening outside the frame. And so I like to write in such a way that, you know, I have a story to tell and it could fit within the pages of a book. but there's more to me and there's more stories and some stories are not really in the, in the context of the book, but just know that there's a whole universe here, not just what you're seeing between page one and page 300. But did I read that correctly that you haven't cooked? You you don't cook. Right. I don't cook. Yeah. So you just get like food delivered or. Well, I, I, I have a wife and kids and (laughs) they cook. So I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, during the pandemic, we had a lot of food delivered. And the last time I did cook, like the oven literally blew up. So uh, I kind of have nervousness about cooking. Yeah. Um, well, so, so yeah, actually speaking of the pandemic, so you, um, you know, you had been doing all your interviews live, I think, sort of in your like comedy, like above your comedy club yeah. and stuff. Um, but then because of the pandemic, obviously, then you, you had to do them remotely. And you say in the book that, um, that as a podcaster, Zoom is very lacking and none of its competitors are any better. So like kind of what, what are the problems you see right now? And I could, I could throw in some things about trying to do uh, interviews, um, you know, over the internet. Well, first off, I should say now that I'm not doing interviews live and I haven't really in a year uh, because of the pandemic, 
I actually really do love doing interviews remote because there's less time to commute to the interview. There's less time setting up. It's easier to actually convince people to be interviewed by me because we're just doing it remote now. They can do it from their home. Uh, I used to require people to come to me. And uh, so I, I enjoy, and also I can take notes during the interview a little more easily. So, cause if I'm going to write an article about it. So I, I love interviewing remote, but in terms of the software, it's, it's a disaster out there. Like first up zoom, of course, is the go-to software that most podcasters use and zoom. The video quality is so poor. Zoom's great for office meetings and conferences, virtual conferences and stuff like that. But a, the audio quality is very one-sided. So you have the same problems as with Skype. If one person has a bad internet connection, you're, you're screwed. Like the, the interview will not sound good. And since most people listen to podcasts, instead of watching them on YouTube or whatever, if you don't have good audio, it's, it's over for you. Like your, your, the pocket, your pocket is not going to survive. And you know, so, so, so zoom has Skypey audio, uh, and the video is a disaster. If you have video with zoom, the quality is so low that if you post it on YouTube, the, the algorithm, YouTube algorithm will punish you for having such poor quality video. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So, so then you have other software packages like uh, Zencaster and Squadcast where they record audio locally and then stitch it together in the cloud. That's, that's a good solution. But like Zencast, both of them now are, are trying to also add video because a lot of people want to put their podcasts on YouTube. So you need to have video. And so all of these companies like, like Zencaster is an example. Um, I've been using it a little bit and I even say it on my podcast to my audio engineer right in the middle of the podcast. Why are we using this? It's that there's too much audio lag that you can't use video properly. There's audio lag. And the video, if there's a poor internet connection, it's just flashing. So it doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. Well, so I I only I don't even have to worry about video because I'm just doing an audio podcast. But the issue that I have with Zencast, which which we're using right now, is that if the person on the other end closes the window or shuts their computer before their file is uploaded, even you tell them a million million times and they still do it, you're you're out of luck. And so, so I have to record the, so what I do is I record the Skype call and I use Zencaster. And if anything goes wrong with Zencaster, at least I've recorded the Skype call. But then you kind of, like, as you've experienced, you have to get people to like log into Skype and log into Zencaster and they're totally confused. And right. so I, I, yeah. I, I didn't even mention that problem, like, but you're right. That, that is a huge problem with a lot of these ones that record audio locally. Um, they need to also have a more general, like just record on one point on one node so that you have the audio in the worst case scenario. Like, let's say I interview Richard Branson and he hangs up too quickly. Am I really going to be able to get a hold of him and say, hey, can you turn yeah. your computer on again? Because I'm <laughs> getting something from your computer right now. Like, he's just not going to do it. I'm never going to yeah. talk to him again in the first place. And he's just going to say, well, I guess we just missed miss that. Yes. Yeah. So, so I saw that you have a, a thing that you're working on. And I was wondering if uh, that was a feature I could suggest to you. Oh, yeah. That's, believe me, that's, uh, an important feature that in, in this, I, I want, look, I'm a podcaster. I want software that works. So I know the same things, you know, which is that none of this software works. You know what you need. It's not that hard. You need something that just works that can record audio and maybe video and maybe have some other features. Like it would be nice if the audio engineer during the podcast could have, um, a soundboard, uh, right in real time in the podcast to take out ums and ahs and maybe drop in an ad so there's some like other features that would be nice to have. And I, I, 
Because you don't want to just be better. I don't want to just be better than Zoom. 700 million people think Zoom is fine. So they're not going to switch if you're just simply 10% better or 20% better. You have to also have to have new features that that are specific to podcasters. And that's that's kind of a fundamental rule of business, that it's not good enough to be better. You have to also be the only. So Betamax famously was better than VHS for storing movies. And Betamax lost because they were just a little bit better than VHS. They weren't really new enough. Yeah, well, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what what you come up with because, yeah, the, the current <laughs> process is pretty painful. Yeah. Um, let me ask you. So I, I, I just typed in just out of curiosity and to Google, I typed in James Altucher and science fiction. And it came up with this quote uh, from you. It says, when I was seven years old, I plagiarized word for word stories from science fiction magazines. So my teachers would think I was smart. Is that a authentic yes. quote? Yes. Yes. Because. I, I just love science fiction. I wanted to be a writer, but I was only seven years old and I didn't really understand what plagiarism was or anything. I just wanted to look smart for my teachers and yeah, it worked. I remember, I think, um, I remember one story, uh, in, in space, no one can hear you scream. That was one I, I borrowed heavily from, <laughs> I think that was Larry Niven. I forget which writer that was. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I just thought it was interesting that even as a, that you even were reading science fiction magazines as a seven-year-old, let alone. Yeah, you know, no, I always loved science fiction, and it wasn't even so much the science part; it was the imagination part. Like, it really sets you free when you, you know, when anything goes, when there's time travel, when there's teleportation, when there's galactic empires with mystical powers, and when there's when there's a a, a universe where there's a planet which is perfect order and there's another universe where there's perfect chaos and there's a spectrum of infinite universes in between and and you could go in and out of those universes it was just beautiful to me this was like analog asimov's uh amazing yeah. stories like those those sort those kinds of magazines yeah yeah and I, and also every weekend my parents would take me to the mall and you know a a pulp science fiction novel would be like a dollar so i would just buy you know like I, I was, you know, there was all these Amber books, for instance, I was re every, I would buy two books. I would finish them in a day because they were, they really were thin books at the time. And I just would soak everything up. And I read a lot of, uh, uh, all those classics too, like Robert Heinlein and, and, um, Isaac Asimov and so on. But I really loved kind of the lesser known, the lesser known writers. And I liked series because I knew I would have a, you know, voracious appetite. So I liked things where there was like the Amber Chronicles was a series and I like those. Yeah, no, I, I really love the 60,000 word slim novels, like the Amber novels. You know, I used to read um, the second book is the guns of Avalon. And whenever I was homesick from school, I had kind of a routine where I would watch Ferris Bueller's day off and then I would read the guns of Avalon. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing you could do both of those and then be done by dinner time, you know, cause the novel is, is not that long. Yeah. And you know, and those tropes could still be played with, you know, uh, which, which we've seen, I gave an example with the, the born identity starts off the same way the Amber Chronicles do. And, you know, but also maybe this idea of a, of a family that is in this distant universe that is perfect order, but they're the only ones who could travel to all the other, like there's, there's things in there that you could still draw from and, and, and create stories out of, and particularly road marks could be redone over and over again. Like that's just a brilliant idea. Uh, and there has been, I've seen, I saw one where there was an ele a giant elevator, a story with a giant elevator where every floor was like a different time period and you didn't know what it was. And that, that was kind of the same trope as, as road marks and Lord of light, you know, an idea of a, an elite group of people using 
technology to um, keep their elite status while everyone else gets, you know, worse and worse off. Heck, that's a trope that was used in the presidential election this past this past year it was with Andrew Yang saying that, or no, no, not Andrew Yang. Actually, it was Yuval Harari in um, in his book Homo Deus uh, said that this is a possibility. As, as as the rich get richer, technology they can make it so technology only benefits them and not, you know, people who are poor. Now, I disagreed with that for fundamental economic reasons, but and he kind of agreed with me. But you know, it's interesting that people still use these ideas. Yeah, I would love to see more stuff that kind of takes some of the ideas and Amber and runs with them. Because I agree with you. I think there's a lot that could be done. I mean, you have stuff like um, Charles Strauss had this series called The Merchant Princes. Um, uh, I don't know like that one. Neil, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, I think, is pretty heavily influenced by uh, Yeah, uh, I loved Sandman. It's the most brilliant comic book series uh, ever. And, you know, here's the thing about Neil Gaiman. Uh, he's a great writer, great imagination. I think he sometimes he loves his stories and his characters and his setup so much. It's almost like he's, he doesn't want to end them. He, he has a hard time concluding stories. So you never really get like the, the most, he, he doesn't really conclude like you would expect a writer to conclude, but he's still, I mean, Salmon is the best series I've, I've ever read. And I love American gods as well, which has a similar type of trope, which is there's this family you're only vaguely conscious of somehow and yet they rule everything around you in a way that's that's deep and mysterious and philosophical. Speaking of comics, in the book you say uh, at one point, maybe I can write that Son of Doctor Strange comic I've always been planning. Yeah. Kinda, what's the status on that? Uh, well, probably nothing. Although one time I scripted out, I, I read a lot of Alan Moore and I read a lot of Sandman and I scripted out in comic book script style a, a series based on uh, Delirium. From the Sandman series, actually. And because I really was fascinated by her character. And uh, I sent it to DC. It just so happens Lou Stathis, the editor who was at High Times, became the editor of DC Comics. And so I sent it to him. And he liked it, but just it didn't really. And then he died, by the way. So it didn't really. And I never repitched it. So. But yeah, I've always I've always loved scripting out comic books. I guess I, I didn't ask earlier, but did you say you submitted a science fiction story to High Times? Yeah. Was it a like marijuana related science fiction story? No, but it was very kind of um, uh, virtual reality, kind of reality distorted. So I figured it would fit in. Um, and I, uh, the editor was a friend of a friend, so I had a connection and I submitted it. But I wasn't, this was in 1991, 92, you know, Fortunately for what's called Dunning-Kruger bias, I thought I was better than, than I actually was. And so I was really horrible. It, it probably took me 10 years of solid writing every day before I was semi-okay at writing. And so many, many would argue with that. <laughs> How many science fiction stories have you written? Um, you know, I haven't written a lot of stories lately, but probably, probably close to like 20 or 30. But I would say that I would, I mean, they were a while ago. I would not use any of them now. Now I write a lot of stories. I write like narrative nonfiction. So I write stories that have a story-like literary feel, but about myself. Because I've been, I write about things that have happened to me. And that tends to be my genre. Almost like, almost kind of like how Charles Bukowski, you know, if you read the book Post Office, he calls it a novel. That was his first novel. 
but it's not really a novel. It's completely nonfiction. It's about his stories working at the post office. So that's kind of the style I like the best. Uh, Celine's journey to the end of the night is similar. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of writers write in that that style. So, so you don't think you'll ever write a any more science fiction? No, I, I actually, it's so funny. Like in twenty, I think it was twenty fifteen. It's about six years ago, or a little more than six years ago. I was going to spend the year writing science fiction. I was going to really go full force into it. And then early in the year, like in January, I got up on a stand-up comedy stage and I became obsessed. And so for the last six years, I've done, you know, except for during the economic lockdowns, I did comedy six nights a week. And that that cut into my writing time. Hmm. So, but but now I'm, you know, the lockdown has kind of phased me out of that addiction. And I'm, um, I've been reading books lately and having on authors lately who could give sort of, I could learn more about plotting and storytelling because, you know, there are literary writers which are more into character development and, and, you know, atmosphere. And then there are kind of the so-called genre writers who are into more into plotting. And I, I don't really believe there's that much of a distinction, but, you know, guys like Ken Follett have sold hundreds of millions of books. Brad Thor has sold hundreds of millions of books. Andy Weir with The Martian sold, you know, a ton of books. So I've been, I've enjoyed learning from people like that, how to construct a good plot. Yeah, no, I definitely got, like, from, like, I listened to your interview with Chuck Wendig, and it definitely sounded like you were, uh, you know, planning to do something related yeah, I, to narrative. I only have on someone on my podcast when they're doing something I want to do. <laughs> So, cause I, I, that's like the podcasts are great because, and I'm sure you know, this. like, it's great to have on people who you, you, you know, you, you, you have on a lot of people so that you could essentially learn what they do so you could do it. And this podcast is a great excuse to call someone up. It's a great excuse to call Neil Gaiman up and say, Hey, can you come on my podcast? I'll help you promote your latest book. But really what I want to do is, you know, learn how to create the Sandman or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you about this? So you say in the book, um, I took 50 shades of gray and hired someone in India to take a thesaurus and change every word in the book. For instance, she hurried to her test, became Brenda rushed to get to the exams on time. Um, just talk about that, that project. Yeah. So I write in the book about how one of the, you know, it doesn't take 10,000 hours. There's, there's a so-called 10,000 hour rule where you need to spend 10,000 hours doing something in order to be the best in the world at it. This is BS to me. I think what the best thing to do is to experiment in every area of your life and you start to learn, you know, what things you're passionate about. And then once you find what things you're passionate about, you start experimenting on those to, to basically skip the line. So you start to develop skills that nobody's even thought of in that industry. So when I was just getting into stand-up comedy, I did an experiment. I'll do stand-up comedy on a subway car. And so for two hours, one day, I went from subway car to subway car. I was scared to death, but it got me a lot of performance time, which is hard to get when you're first starting in stand-up comedy. And it also gave me a lot of experience to how to deal with a hostile crowd because nothing's more hostile than a New York City subway crowd during rush hour. So it was an experiment. And the theory was this will make me a better comedian. And that experiment worked. And uh, some experiments work, some don't. But even when they don't work, the only downside is you, you learn something. And so I don't know why I did this experiment. It wasn't an, exper it wasn't an experiment about writing or, or maybe it was, you know, 50 shades of gray is an interesting book because it's one of the top selling books of all time already. And 
if you read it, it's not a well-written book. And I don't think E.L. James, the author, would disagree with me. It's, it's, it's a poorly written book. So what is it about Fifty Shades of Grey that made it special? So I tried one experiment I tried to test an idea out was I rewrote the book. Now, if I rewrote the book exactly, people would say, oh, this is just Fifty Shades of Grey. This is plagiarism. So you can see plagiarism starting to be a theme in my life. <laughs> but so, so I, I wrote this version of Fifty Shades of Grey where, where, by the way, technically it's still plagiarism, but I replaced every word in the book by a synonym. So like you said, the example, like instead of she ran home to take her exams, it was like uh, Brenda hurried back to her dormitory so she could make her tests. And every sentence was like that, just a pure copy of the exact sentence in Fifty Shades of Grey. And, uh, you know, and then I had an editor go through it and make it sound a little better. And I published it on Amazon by self-publishing, which by the way, a lot of E.L. James started off self-publishing. Hugh Howey uh, uh, with Wool and Andy Weir with The Martian were all originally self-published. A lot of these, you know, genre writing doesn't have the same stigma on self-publishing. So I, I, I think a lot of these genre writers move the needle in the publishing industry in ways that literary writers don't. But uh, so I published this book. I think it was um, Diary or no, How to Satisfy a Billionaire. I changed the title and it's the story <laughs> of a shy girl, the diary of a shy girl. And the, I used a pseudonym, of course, Jackie King, the famous porn writer, Jackie King. And uh, uh, it sold like 60 copies. That's it. So, you know, it was just a fun experiment. Really didn't have any concrete conclusion. I think what really helped E.L. James was her huge social media following on fan fiction websites for Twilight. And that's what really got her her first quarter million sales, which then got her to um, have a real legit publisher. And then there was another odd thing that helped her, which was the invention of the Kindle. Because if I'm reading a soft porn book and I'm taking a bus to work, and which is maybe the only time many people read is I don't want people looking at the cover of Fabio and they're having sex and whatever, but on a Kindle, no one could see what you're reading. You just look smart. Like you're reading on the subway. And so I think that opened up the gates to books like 50 shades of gray and 50 shades of gray was published just then. And because it was self-published and Amazon was pushing their self-publishing, it got a little push on the Kindle because of that. Did you ever worry that your self-published book would do really well? And then you would have plagiarism issues? Um, you know, I never worry about stuff like that. A lot of people do worry about things like that. Like I had, um, oh yeah, yeah. I wrote an article about skip the line and I gave it a rave review at the very top of the article. So skip the line is my recent book. And I gave it a rave review on the top of the article from, from Jerry Seinfeld and Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> it, Jerry Seinfeld in notoriously hates me. Like he wrote an entire op-ed in the New York times a few months ago, just completely trashing me. So I assume people would just take it as a joke. And what ended up happening was a lot of people was like, Oh man, that's great. You guys, you know, made up and Jerry Seinfeld read your book and he loves it. And my wife was really worried. Like Jerry Seinfeld's going to sue you. Jerry Seinfeld's going to sue you. And I'm like, you know what? He's not going to sue me. It's clearly a joke, even if not everyone gets it. And I'll just worry about it when it happens. If you spend this, there are many more bad things that can happen than good things for most activities you do. And if you spend too much time thinking about the bad things, you're never going to get anything done. And, and also life's about taking some chances. And what's the worst case that could happen? Is Jerry, Jerry Simon's not going to sue me. He could say, I didn't say that. And I could apologize to him. And by the way, that's 
that's newsworthy. So that will drive sales to the book. That's the worst <laughs> that could happen. I was wondering, yeah, because you because know, I followed the whole, you know, because uh, to explain, you wrote an article called "New York City is Dead Forever" or something like that. Yeah, and then Jerry Seinfeld called you a a putz and a yes. loser and and stuff. Lots and of I, things. I was, yes, I, since I'm not I'm not that involved in the comedy world, so I wasn't sure how like is he, he really legitimately hates you or is is all of it kind of a um a way to get a, get publicity and have fun or or whatever? Like if you if you ran into him at a club or something probably legitimately probably a little bit of both like i don't think he likes me but i don't think he like despises me or anything he maybe despised my article and i think he misread my article we both have a similar love for new york city and we want it to be good i just think he was in a little denial and he probably thought i was wrong so uh but yeah he's performed at the club that i own and you know i have no real problem with him uh but i but it did cause me a lot of grief a lot of people rode his words and and really use that to further trash me and it was a lot of comedians trying to get on his good side trashed me and i knew all of them and so it was really personally upsetting but you know it was it was for me i didn't care that much his, his opinion is not one that i'm like oh my god i hope jerry seinfeld likes me like his opinion is not one i you know focus on yeah. I guess maybe the last thing I'll mention here is that I, I was just, I forget which interview I was just listening to, but you, the two of you were talking, uh, I forget which one it was, but the two of you were talking about why was Harry Potter so successful when other, you know, similar books weren't. And I even interviewed, you know, I interviewed an author named Jane Yolen and she wrote a book called like Wizard School or something like that, that came out, you know, 10 or 15 years before Harry Potter. And it was exactly the same thing. There was like a, a kid with glasses and his best friend was a girl and his other best friend had red hair. And the, um, you know, the, the bad guy is a former professor at their magic school and all this stuff. And then obviously it didn't have anything like the success of Harry Potter, uh, even though she's a great author. And I suspect the book might, might even be better. I haven't read it, but I, I really felt like, and I wasn't really involved in publishing when the first Harry Potter book came out, I was just in college, but like everybody I heard talking about it, was just really obsessed with this idea that the author had been on welfare. And it was like this rags to riches story where she was like a single mom on welfare. And now she had had this book that was a best-selling book. And I really wonder if, you know, like at a certain point, what makes a book a super phenomenon is that it was a, it's a phenomenon. And so you just have to explain how did it become a phenomenon? And I wonder if the, if this rags to riches story was a big part of why out of all the, similar kind of books that have ever been published that Harry Potter became that initial phenomenon. Right. I mean, it's probably, it's probably related because think about that earlier book, you know, there's a lot of books. You, you go to the bookstore, there's 10,000 books or you go to Amazon, there's 10 million books. And you know, why would someone read this person? People probably didn't even know who she was. I never even heard of that series, for instance. And people heard about the Harry Potter series because they didn't know if it was good or not. They just knew this rag to riches story. So they figured, okay, I'll check it out. So you have to give someone, people say, don't judge a book by its cover. You actually have to, everybody judges a book by its cover. That's the only way to judge a book before you read it. Or you've, you've read some story about the book, which help you helps you make a decision whether to read it or not. So there, there has to be some story about the story in order to get people to, to read it in the first place. So that's what, probably what, maybe this woman wrote a great book and just nobody knew about it. And so they didn't read it. I mean, you also know as well as I do, Neil Gaiman wrote books of magic about a kid with black hair and glasses 
who goes to a wizard school and he's, 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 or he's, he's suddenly everybody realizes he's the best magician in history, including him. He didn't know it. He's like the best wizard. And, uh, so people accused her of stealing from that plot, but that's like, it's a familiar trope. There's been many, uh, you know, what was it? Lev Grossman's written, um, magician school type books since then. And they've done very well. There's a lot of people who have written similar types of books. And then you kind of take a trope like that or, or, you know, a genre like that and you reverse it. So, uh, there's the, what is it? The lemony snicket or something. Who's like yeah. a, a kid who's like a bad wizard or something. Uh, I didn't read that series. So I don't know exactly, but it's like an inverted <laughs> yeah. Harry Potter. So there's things you can do. You take a, a successful story and you can invert it. And that also should probably be successful. But as as always, you need the the story behind the story as well. I mean, for a while, young adult paranormal was a a huge, booming industry. Maybe in part because of the success of Harry Potter or other things, but you know, like the Hunger Games and um, you know all these other books. But you know, eventually it tires out. Like a thousand people write the same story, and eventually it tires out. There's a little bit of a luck factor too. So it's it's like network luck, the story behind the story even the cover and books of magic, by the way, had just been written. So maybe people liked that story and wanted more. So that could have kicked it off. Who knows? Yeah. And whenever people say like, Oh, this is this, this author ripped off this one thing. Usually, you know, like, like with star Wars, you hear this a lot, like, Oh, he ripped off Dune. He ripped off hidden fortress, like whatever it is. But it's like, at some point, like the examples of who he supposedly ripped off multiply so much that it's like, well, if there's 50 different things that he totally ripped off, obviously he didn't rip off any one of them that much. Yeah, that's a know? good point. Or they all ripped off each other. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there, there's, I was having this conversation with Stephen Pressfield recently and he's written, he wrote uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which was, uh, I think that was in the 90s and it became a movie with Will Smith and Matt Damon. And it's about a golf tournament in Georgia in the 1920s. And he told me, beat for beat, every chapter in the story is the same as beat for beat, the Bhavagat Gita, with, with similar characters, similar, you know, so the Bhavagat Gita is the most religious text in Hinduism. It's probably written around 500 BC, so, so 2,500 years ago. And he said it's the exact story. The characters are based on the characters there. Just even the language, like beat for beat, he took everything from that. And that's a genius idea because... This is a text that has been focus grouped by billions of people over 2,500 years. So we know it's a successful <laughs> story, just like the Bible is. And, you know, a lot of people compare Star Wars to the story of Jesus. And so, so when you take these ancient texts and apply it to a 1920s golf tournament in Georgia, that's certainly not plagiarism. That's just smart writing where you, you take something that has been through history and still survived. There's plenty of books that have not survived the past 2,500 years and nobody will ever know about them because they sucked. But <laughs> these classic texts like the Bible, the Bhavagat Gita, um, the, the story of Buddha, uh, all these other texts that you can borrow from them and, and write stories with those ideas and, and they will work. And, and a lot of stories are like that, including Harry Potter is sort of like the story of Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more we could say about this, but I think uh, we're we're pretty much out of time. So I think we should start wrapping this up here. I mean, it's been super fun talking with you, James. Yeah, same here. I'm super, I'm super excited to come on. I'm really happy you invited me on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been it's been really really fun. Do you have any just um, any other projects you want to let people know about, or any final thoughts or anything? Uh, no, I think I, I I would like to say skip the line. My most recent book is a book about 
how to how to not only find your cha- uh, passion, how to be the, in the top 1% in the world for it. So for instance, you and I have been talking about science fiction writing. If anyone listening really wants to quit, quit being an accountant at some point and switch to being a science fiction writer, I basically describe step-by-step how to be in the top 1% of the world of, of any field you could imagine. And I kind of you know, trash the 10,000 hour rule and give 20 other techniques, but also not only that it's, it's one thing. And we, we touched on this with Harry Potter. It's one thing to be a good writer. It's another thing to monetize like that other woman you mentioned might've even been a better writer than JK Rowling, but she didn't know the field enough perhaps to monetize it. And so that's very, and no, no book out there really covers both how to learn, you know, kind of meta learn, things and then how to monetize it, how to understand your, the, the new field you're entering in really quickly. Like when I started doing stand-up comedy, everyone told me, you can't skip the line, James. You got to, I've been doing this for 20 years and you got to do this, 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 and this, and it takes time. Well, you know, just a few years later, I was touring all over the world and people enjoyed it. And even right before the pandemic, I toured all over the Netherlands and then came back here and did a bunch of cities here. And I, I, I just canceled to going to Philadelphia because I didn't feel like going. But in any case, you, it's possible literally to do just about anything you want and and do it well and and monetize it. And that, that's why I've switched careers like five or six times. And that and so have every one of my eight hundred podcast guests. And that's what <laughs> I've learned. Yeah, no, it's it's really good about. I mean, like I uh, I'm not very good at monetizing or uh, making money in general. And just reading through the book, I just kept. And I don't usually think about ways I could make more money, but just reading through this book, I was just getting all these ideas. Like, oh, I could make money this way. I could make money this way. So it's definitely good for that. Yeah, I mean, how's how? Like, I know you write a lot of science fiction stories. Have you um, uh, gone into novel writing? No, I haven't, you know, so I, I, I published about 30, you know, I started publishing science fiction stories when I was 16 and I, um, you know, I published about 30 and I was in like best of the year anthologies and stuff like that. And then I got into podcasting and I've just had so much fun podcasting that it kind of took over my life. And I've been doing that for about 10 years. Oh, great. And, um, I do want to get, the next step would be to write a novel, but I, I haven't written a novel yet. I am hoping to get back to that. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting though, but like, you know, I don't know how many people listen to your podcast, but you've been doing it in 10 years. I'm assuming you have a good audience. The thing is, every episode of your podcast probably gets more listeners than the average. The average novel has like 200 sales. So, <laughs> you know, it's it, people aren't really as interested in brand new novels these days as much. Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be more just because I want to do it for myself. It's been my lifelong dream. But yes, but that I mean, one of the things that's kept me doing podcasts is just it's so much fun. Uh, doing recording something and having it come out a couple of days later. Whereas when I was writing fiction, it would be like a year or two years or three years, even for a short story from the time that you sell it to the time that it actually gets published. And that's, that, that's pretty frustrating to deal with. That's what I love about uh, self-publishing. You can finish the novel and just make sure it's good enough and uh, upload it to Amazon. And now it's published and no one, no one ever asked, well, did Tor books publish you? No one cares. Like here's, here's my science fiction book. Enjoy it. Yeah, so I might, I might, I might do that for sure. And again, like Wool started that way. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, The Martian, a lot, a lot of great science fiction books started that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so, and Wool and uh, The Martian are like, you know, not only were they self-publishing successes, but they're also some of the best books that I've read in the last, you know, in the last ten years that I've been doing this podcast. So. Oh my god, I love them so much. And like Hugh Howey is just a great, a great science fiction writer. 
Yeah, yeah. No, he's 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 amazing. Yeah, and he's been on the show too. So if people oh, are good. curious, uh, you can check that out. Yeah. But yes, why don't we uh, wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with James Altucher. And again, his new book is called Skip the Line. So James, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, David, this is such a pleasure. Your podcast is great. Your, your, the interview was really fun. I enjoyed talking with you. Um, let's, let's, let's keep staying in touch. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. Thanks, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to James Altucher for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.